It's the film that all the nerd world is talking about, and in this week's episode of The Byword, we throw our respective capes and cows into the ring. That's right, we're giving a full review of Matt Reeves' The Batman. The Byword begins now. Welcome to another episode of the Nerd Byword Podcast, the only nerd podcast that, apparently like Oswald Cobblepot, can cr- uh, correct your Spanish grammatical errors. He's Dave, I'm Chris, and together we form the dynamic duo of nerds that today will be bringing you our thoughts on and reaction to the latest cinematic spectacle in the world of comic book films, The Batman. But first, it's time for... Dave, hello there. Yeah, well, it seems like, you know, the new Kenobi trailer. Wait, we're not doing the Batman voice thing? <laughs> ah, crap, man. I wish somebody would have told me. Uh, yeah, so uh, it turns out that the uh, first teaser trailer for the Disney Plus limited series uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi uh, just released. And, you know, lo and behold, this sucker actually got me hyped, and I'm not really quite sure what's going on. Is it that Ewan McGregor was the absolute best part of the prequel movies? Is it that John Williams' scores from the prequels still rocked, even though the movies themselves were questionable at best? I'm really not sure, but I'm very, very excited to revisit Ewan McGregor's version of Obi-Wan Kenobi. And uh, I'm just unreasonably excited for this limited series, considering how little esteem I have for the prequel movies. There's also, you know, just just generally the, the sense that... Um, Ewan McGregor in particular could have done so much more with the role of Obi-Wan Kenobi if he would have gotten better writing. And based on what we've seen from something like The Mandalorian, um, some of these Disney Plus series are obviously getting some really good writing and directing going. Uh, So so there's there's an excitement there. Uh, I'm also really interested to see how, how far they push some of the um some of the Tatooine stuff. Now I know through several, you know, quote unquote leaks that the whole series is not going to be taking place on Tatooine, um, which, you know, is interesting too, <clears throat> thinking that, you know, Kenobi might've left for a little while, but at the same time, I'm very interested in like uh, the Lars family and their raising of Luke and how much we get to see of uh, young Luke and how he is characterized at this point uh, in his life. And then of course there's the, you know, the big one that they didn't even really touch on uh, in the uh, trailer, which is of course that we get to see uh, Darth Vader, again and that Hayden Christensen has returned to uh, play him uh, I would say there's probably a very good chance we're going to get some f- uh, flashbacks um, to before uh, his transformation otherwise it makes very little sense to bring him back and then I'm very interested in those flashbacks you know how how are they going to reconcile the really crappy writing of the prequels with something that tries to be you know a little better how are they going to hit that characterization are they going to lean into you know more the clone wars characterization of of anakin or what what exactly are they going to do with these scenes there are a lot of questions here um 
all I know for sure is that visually, so far, it looks gorgeous. It, it definitely has sort of a big screen uh, Star Wars vibe going on. Uh, there's, it's expansive. It's, it's gorgeous. Um, having John Williams back to, you know, do the score, even though the man is like 90 years old at this point, and just seeing Ewan McGregor back in this role, I... I I don't know, man. Is it nostalgia, Chris? Am, am I really falling victim to nostalgia for the prequels of all things? Why am I so excited about this thing, man? Uh, it's the Inquisitorial Squad. Because uh, that looks awesome. <clears throat> I don't even... I, I know the High Inquisitor, I believe, is his name. The guy with the, the pale face and then the, the markings. But the unnamed character that is played by a black woman, I'm, I'm not even sure of her name. Like She is absolutely captivating to me. Her aura is just mesmerizing so that's 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 one of the primary things that's bringing me back um uh, you know my my initial reaction is like that viral tiktok where it's like that's effing obi-wan kenobi <laughs> like it's so <laughs> it's so awesome like uh yeah and i think for me what's bringing me back to this is kind of the revitalization of of star wars through these disney plus series you know even with the sequel trilogies we have our you know, lumps to throw in about the about those, but like I, as a Star Wars fan, I've really felt rejuvenated with these Disney Plus series, and, and they've had a couple of dips, um, but for the most part, I, I'll, I'll take them. <clears throat> so, you know, one thing that that keeps me coming back to like that prequel era, and like it's it's like so much untapped potential. I feel, you know, particularly with something like Hayden Christensen. Um, with with Ewan McGregor is like there's there's so much quality talent there and they just weren't given any ingredients. We talked about this, you know, with our our fixing of the prequel episodes. <clears throat> but it, it'll be interesting to see like what we can do now because and I think that's probably the biggest thing that's got me excited coming back is all that untapped potential that was just left on the shelf there. Yeah, you know, I think that's that's probably the biggest thing. I always felt like the chemistry between Christensen and Kenobi was there. But then, you know, in Attack of the Clones, they were separated for most of the movie. In Revenge of the Sith, they're separated for huge chunks of the movie, except for the opening uh, action sequence. I feel like we very, very rarely had those those moments. Like, we were constantly being told that they had this super, like, deep connection and friendship and everything, but we never actually saw it. And if anything else, I hope that we get some flashback scenes that kind of... Um, kind of elucidate that relationship a little bit and and make us feel you know what Kenobi feels when he looks at you know his former friend and 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 trainee uh, having fallen so far i mean i i think that would be that that would be a, p- a missing piece of the puzzle that we desperately need in in Star Wars but yeah man i'm just excited about this and i'm ready to i'm ready to rock i'm ready to watch this thing yeah for sure all right, Chris. Once again, you have to be the downer. Yeah, so we go well, from excitement to what the crap, you know. Let's 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 look at it this way. It's like um, we've learned our lesson. So it, it came out that um, Zoe Kravitz was turned down for a role in Christopher Nolan's uh, film, The Dark Knight Rises, in 2012, and for. To, to put this, there's no real great way to put this for being too urban. Um, and so a lot of people were speculating that it was indeed for the role of Catwoman, but she took to Instagram stories to dispel that, um, uh, saying, quote, uh, I wanted to audition for a small part in the film. I was told 
I do not know who said this, but this is how it was worded to me that they were not going to go. They were not going quote urban on the part. This is something that I heard a lot 10 years ago. It was a very different time end quote. So she goes on to say that like, this is not a direct shot at Christopher Nolan or anybody particularly that was involved and, and that we've come a long way, but you know, it's just crazy to think there was so much that went wrong with that movie. And when you kind of kind of take like the the bird's eye view, the macro view of this, with someone like Christopher Nolan, who has been built up as this like auteur cinematic genius or what have you, and a lot of his films I do enjoy. Uh, Inception is one of my all time favorites. But when you kind of sit back and think at the greater picture of this, um, in with someone like Nolan, he kind of lives in that echo chamber. And he's probably surrounded by a lot of affirmation. And when you look at the majority of his cast, with the exception of John David Washington in in Tenet, um, it is a majority, if not exclusively, a white cast. And so I I just think that that's like a problem of not diversifying the people that are surrounding that are around you and, um, you know, just surrounding yourself with people that just kind of sign off on everything that you say and not widening your own horizons enough and and i think that's that is an apt criticism of people like christopher nolan and you know i'm glad to see that there is a happy ending to this and we've got you know we'll talk about this more in in our review of the film but you know what we could have had with that film you know to be honest that was a whole mess that movie um you know casting white actors for Bane casting a white actor for Talia al Ghul for Ra's al Ghul like it's it's incredibly problematic when you look back at it of course it was 10 years ago and you'd like to think that we we would come stronger now but yeah so so maybe maybe it's a blessing in disguise that Zoe was able to kind of dodge this bullet per se and then kind of get you know her her time in the sun uh with with this film yeah, it strikes me that Nolan is a director who uh, orders copious amounts of crackers with his soup, if you get my meaning. <laughs> um, I'm really unsure, you know, if, I don't think that's necessarily, um, I don't know if it's deliberate on his part, if it's a subconscious thing. But, you know, you, you're right, even like just kind of thinking back through some of his movies, um, you know, The Prestige, for example, which I thought was very well done. Most of the Batman movies were good, but I'm I'm, tr- I'm struggling to think of many people of color. There was like that one, that one mob boss in The Dark Knight, I think, and of course there was Michael you know, Jai Morgan White. Freeman. Yeah, Michael Jai White. Yeah, and then there. That's right. And then there Morgan, was um, Morgan Freeman. Morgan Freeman. But I mean, it's yeah. Morgan Freeman. I mean, like, yeah. I mean, you know. So uh, yeah, it, until Tenet, it was very, very much, uh, you know white casts almost exclusively in his movies um and it is probably a little bit of the george lucas syndrome you know like you you have achieved a certain level of success and then you are surrounded by by yes men and yes women who basically don't question any of your decisions and it would be good for somebody to say um have you thought about maybe a person of color um have you read a comic book talia al ghul isn't white um you know these are um i think sincere issues um, that that we see coming out of Hollywood, um, Nolan seems uh, in a lot of ways a little a little tone deaf with some of his statements that he's made over the last couple of years. It, it feels a little bit like he's starting to believe his own hype. Yeah. And although he ma- although he makes interesting, always interesting movies, even if they don't work, um, 
you know, I'm pointing at Interstellar, for example, which I thought was a very, very, very fun little sci-fi mood piece. And at the same time, I think the finale, because love transcends time and space, was a little weird and hokey. Um, you know, the, the man makes interesting movies. That is absolutely undeniable. And he does he does experiment in some respects with the form. Uh, and sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. Um, but But that's the point, I think. Sometimes the things he does don't work and so he should definitely make sure he surrounds himself with people that are willing uh, to, to question him even if that's you know a casting age and that's like do, do you really are you really really sure that this role has to be somebody you know that's not a person of color how does that even influence this character that seems like a weird situation like he, he everybody needs somebody standing on the sidelines you know yelling remember thou art mortal and i think in in, in some cases with these hollywood directors they need it especially yeah, uh, car- uh, carbon copy that and send it to Ridley Scott as well. <laughs> You're not kidding, man. I mean, uh, some of the tone deaf stuff these people are saying lately, Martin Scorsese too. Yeah. I like, you know, just just because more people watch a, a you know a superhero movie than you know your your little crime drama doesn't mean necessarily that you know there's a some kind of like blind spot in society and they just don't recognize art anymore. Maybe your little crime movie just wasn't that interesting. Um, and, you know, I'm one of the first people to say, I don't need boom, boom explosions and action scenes nonstop. Um, something we can talk about more in our review of the Batman. Um, but you do have to do something to captivate your audience. I mean, no, nobody's going to flock to your movie just because your name is, you know, Ridley Scott or Martin Scorsese. N- not these days. Yeah, I still I still want my money back for the Irishman, and and I I, I refuse to watch it. Oh my god, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, it is interesting to note that you know with with John David Washington being the lead of Tenet, you think maybe he's turned a corner, but then you see the cast so far of his upcoming film Oppenheimer, uh, and it looks like a Fox News like talent scout thing. So <laughs> it's it's not great, not great, not great, Bob. <laughs> Uh, here's our cast for the movie. We got Tucker Carlson as Oppenheimer. We got Laura Ingram as his love interest. Like, yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, that's really creepy. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I think on that note, maybe it's time for us to move on, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Be sure to stick around after this, our first break. We're coming at you with our review, likes, dislikes, and the whole shebang with uh, Matt Reeves, the Batman. <laughs> All right, it's here. All two hours and 55 minutes of it. We are here to discuss the Batman. Our likes, our dislikes, everything in between. As is customary with our film reviews, um, we have three likes and three dislikes apiece, even if not to put the cart before the horse, you have to really scrape the bottom for the ladder, at least in my perspective. But Dave will go likes first. And this is the first thing I noticed about the film and is the first thing that we said after we both watched it. What is your first like? I think one of the things that has happened with Batman is that certain interpretations um, of the character have sort of started superseding um sort of the origin point of the character and and the influences that were very clear uh, sort of in the early goings of the character. So one of the things we see is like, you know, here's 
Batman who can stand up to alien invasions. Here's Batman who, you know, tussles with dark side, blah, 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 yada, yada, yada. Which has never been really the best starting point for a Batman story in my book. Um, Batman, in a lot of ways, is deeply influenced by, like, the, the, the film noir movement in particular, I think. Um, and, and everybody's sort of favorite interpretation of Batman, and yes, I say everybody, even though there is always somebody who disagrees, is, is definitely this grounded sort of detective story. Um, I mean, if you take Batman and you swap out the cape and cowl for, like, a fedora and a raincoat, you know, you can pretty easily get a sense for, you know, the kind of story that Batman feels really at home in. And this is really, in a lot of ways, the first time that a movie has leaned into the film noir sort of influences that are very, very clear in some of the best Batman stories. Many of the best Batman stories are mysteries in some way, and he's trying to, you know, figure something out and he's investigating. And although there are action sequences, there are also a lot of scenes that could come straight out of something like the Maltese Falcon, you know, a good Humphrey Bogart noir movie where he's just kind of moving from scene to scene and talking to different people. And, you know, the plot keeps thickening and he's trying to like put the pieces together. That is very much in the DNA of Batman. And I am so pleased that we are starting to see that now, in a big screen adaptation, it's so odd to me that Batman was so clearly influenced by what is essentially a movement within movie making. Yet when they started making movies about Batman, even going back to like the, the, the very first, you know, serial that they made of him, they never really leaned into the noir elements. And here we are. And this is something that Matt Reeves absolutely got right. I mean, within the first few minutes, we have voiceover narration. There is a very sort of slow, deliberate pacing. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not not boring or something. And I wouldn't say that it's slow as, as a storytelling thing. But it is not racing from action set piece to action set piece necessarily. It takes its time. Um, it realizes that there is tension and drama in inner character um sort of interactions and not just, you know, punch, punch, blow something up. There is drama in those interactions as well. And it definitely milks the drama out of those interactions. Um, it's a very, very clearly a detective plot with sort of serial killer. And, you know, he, Batman's trying to catch him very clearly influenced by something like um, the long Halloween or um you know, Dark Victory, both of those are, are Jeff Lowe pieces from before he lost his mind. Um, and those are very, very good influences, even those stories, you know, strong voiceover element. There's a killer on the loose that has a particular pattern. Batman is trying to catch the person. It's This is sort of the DNA of the character. And seeing what is an interpretation on the big screen of some of the best elements of Batman and some of the things that make him so much more interesting than, you know, the average, you know, superhero, the guy who doesn't have powers, the guy who uses his mind as well as his brawn. You know, these things have been sorely lacking uh, in big screen um, adaptations of Batman. So just seeing these film noir elements, seeing the, the detective plot, this was sorely needed, man, and it just it, it it made my heart sing to see this on the this version of Batman on the big screen, Chris. Yeah, and I think in a lot of the way, a lot of ways we talk about this with with Spider Man films as well, where they go, oh, he's an Avenger, oh, he's fighting aliens and stuff like that. We're like, yeah, but at his core, he's a street level hero. He's helping out the everyday people in New York City, 
And, you know, when we finally got some returns to that, that was, you know, very, made us very, very happy. <clears throat> and, you know, like, so like, what, what was the influence of this movie in particular, the Batman? You know, I kept hearing, you know, coming out of the film, like, oh my God, this is year one. Oh my God, this is the long Halloween. And so the influence of this movie was this Marvel fanboy went straight to DC Universe Infinite and started reading both of those books. And this is text. It's right there. It's absolutely right there. Uh, down to uh, it's it, particularly in the year one by Frank Miller. You see like the kind of cursive manuscript, uh, like 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 in a notebook. And you see Bruce in this film writing like that. Uh, so that kind of jumped out to me. Um, but yeah, this also felt like a straight like three or four parter okay maybe 10 parter in batman the animated series like you know one of the, one of our f- first exposures to the character um and and really kind of in that mask of the phantasm type you know detective story and and it absolutely was was perfect uh on on the nose when it came to those elements for me yeah yeah you're exactly right and you know i've <clears throat> i know that you've you're, you're you're the marvel fanboy and you've not read a lot of these things i remember very very vividly the first time i read um batman year one <clears throat> a, a great piece of work from before frank miller lost his mind um <laughs> like what happens to comic book writers when they get older i'm not really sure um but you know yeah you're exactly right that sort of cursive script from year one um, the detective elements from Long Halloween, that sort of voiceover element, uh, the relationship between between um, you know Batman and, and James Gordon, which we'll, we'll, we'll talk more about in a bit, um, it, just, it just hits so many right notes. Um, as a comic book fan, I, I find it difficult to believe that a comic book fan would not enjoy this, considering how closely it takes influence from some of the very best Batman stories. All right, Chris, uh, your first point. I I don't know if I'm ready to talk about that. I'm already breaking out in sweats here. <laughs> she's, the, she's the star of the show. She's everything. Uh, yeah, Zoe Kravitz as Selena Kyle was, was incredible. Um, and like I said in our news story, maybe it was for the best that she was not attached to Dark Knight Rises in any form or fashion so she could have uh, 100% of the shine here. Uh, it's it's so incredible. I loved everything about the character. I loved everything about like her choices, acting wise. The chemistry between her and Pattinson was magnificent. Um, I even loved like the 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 idea that she's the son of Carmine Falcone, like that Falcone Falcone. Who knows? Um, like I thought that was genius, and like this whole revenge tour thing for her mother. I thought that was incredible and it really gave like some some really interesting backstory to the character. Um I loved her fighting style. I loved that she rescued him. Like there was so much to love about this character and if we don't get like a, a solo series or film um I'm going to riot. Yeah, it's probably by far my favorite um Catwoman interpretation. Um you know, there've been some some good ones remarkable ones in their own right over the years you know we can we can argue about how you know comic book accurate they were here and there but you know the the catwoman of the comic books is is incredibly complex in a lot of ways i mean she is you know not necessarily a villain but not necessarily a hero somebody who's willing to walk on the other side of the law um 
and and does come into conflict with Batman because of that frequently. But at the same time, there's a, a undeniable um, attraction and relationship there between the two, um, and they do care for each other, which you know is is a great uh, level of complexity in, in that relationship. And I think you know. I think Zoe's version of Selina Kyle comes the closest to what we've seen in the comic books. It's really, really pitch perfect in so many ways. You know, those those moments when when her and Batman are just kind of staring in each other's eyes and you just don't know, are they going to go in for a kiss? Or are they going to try to beat the crap out of each other? You know, like what, what's coming next? You never quite know. Um, so this interpretation of, of Catwoman was just really, really, really good. The, easily the best in my book that we have seen in live action. I will also say, since we're talking about influences, that's, um, if I remember correctly, uh, straight from uh, uh, Jeff Lopes uh, and Tim Sale's Dark Victory. Um, at the end of that 13-issue maxi-series, they reveal that uh, that Selina Kyle believes that she is the daughter of Carmine Falcone and that, that she was coming you know, after him to try to dismantle his empire, basically. So that, you know, once again... Uh, you know, Matt Reeves the Batman is wearing its influences on its sleeve, but they're excellent influences. Yeah, um, I, I will say that I, as far as comics go, I'm not very well versed in Selina Kyle, but her Marvel counterpart, if you will, Felicia Hardy, is one of my favorite characters in all of the Marvel universe. So I see a lot of parallels there um, between the two characters, and it's everything I love about uh, about Felicia. I would also say that if you're not very well uh, well versed in Catwoman, um, I, I definitely can throw some uh, nerd commendations your way. There are some uh, some quintessential uh, Catwoman runs, um, and there are some stories that she plays a significant role in in the Batman uh, comics as well that are really 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 good. Um, so yeah, it's just a very very interesting character, and I would say in a lot of ways she's harder edged uh, than than Black Cat Felicia Hardy. Um, I always felt like that, that, you know, flirtatious banter that she has with, with Spidey is a little more on the humorous end. Whereas I think in a lot of, uh, in a lot of interpretations in the comic books, Selena has a, has a much harder edge. She's, it, it sometimes seems like she's had it a lot tougher yeah. and is, is, and is harder edged because of that. And so the, there is a flirtatious banter with Batman, but there always is like a, a much more dangerous undercurrent, I think to those interactions than what you would see in the Spidey comics. I think you, I think you would find yourself a big Catwoman fan after reading some of her more, more quintessential stories. I really believe that. I, I, I definitely am interested. Uh, I will totally agree with what you said. Felicia is very still, even though she's had hardships, she's still very fun loving and very kind of, you know, very, like very silly and still very humorous, like you said. So uh, I definitely, I can definitely, even even with little experience on the other side of that comparison, I can definitely see that straight away. If you're not going to read anything else, I'm not sure if this is um, necessarily on uh, DC Universe Unlimited. I haven't checked. But if you're going to read anything Catwoman, um, I would really, really recommend... Um, Darwin Cook's uh, Selena's Big Score, um, Catwoman uh, When in Rome, which is another Jeff Loeb joint from before he lost his marbles. And um, Ed Brubaker actually had a run on the character that is absolutely fantastic. And if you even like just look at the cover of um, 
of volume one, you can definitely see this very, very strong influence of the Brubaker run on Zoe Kravitz's interpretation of the character. So I would, those would be like my three starting points. I would definitely do like Darwin Cook's Selena's Big Score, Catwoman When in Rome, and probably Brubaker's run uh, for sure. I think you'll, I think you'll enjoy those, man. My friend, my friend Caleb right now is grinning from ear to ear and he will be when he hears this selena kyle's his all-time favorite character in comics so i'll have to tell him i've got a lot of homework yeah and 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 trust me that's tip of the iceberg i mean you know there's also great batman stories where she's incredibly significant character um that i think you'd enjoy i I can put together a list if you'd like (laughs) all right dave your next like is what i there's so much great about this movie and this is right at the top you know again we we never really get to see um on the big screen how tight gordon and batman are i remember there was a a batman the animated series um tie-in issue um that is essentially like like a New Year's Eve sort of thing or something. And you see that there's like this tradition that Batman and Gordon specifically meet in this one little cafe or something where nobody asks questions and they sit there and they they share a cup of coffee, basically. Um, and just like that level of, you know, we we don't know each other, but we do know each other, you know? Like we're 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 friends, we're allies, but you know, we're not just colleagues. Like there is a there's a friendship there and a trust that that you don't easily get in other relationships in Gotham because everybody's out for themselves. And so seeing in the Batman, you know, this central um relationship, and I really believe the central relationship in a lot of ways of this movie is Gordon and Batman. You know, Gordon sticking his neck out for Batman, bringing him into crime scenes, helping him escape when the other cops are trying to come after him. You know, Batman always trying to help Gordon out. You know, there's there's a there's a strong central relationship there that we've never actually seen on the big screen. And I'm not saying anything about, you know, castings of other uh, of other Jim Gordons. There've been, you know, several good ones. But there is something about about Jeffrey Wright's interpretation of the character. There's something about how he interacts with Batman. Like you know that something happened. You know, like there is a history there. Something happened between those two and they just decided we're gonna trust each other, you know? And at one point or early on in the movie, you know, Gordon says, uh, Batman says something like, uh, don't you trust me? And he says, I don't even know who you are. But in the same token, 30 minutes later, he's like, uh, I don't trust these guys. I don't trust anybody but you. You know, like there's, there's, you know, there's this implicit trust between the two. And and I just, this this relationship is what we see in the comic books. You know, this very strong bond between gordon and batman where even though gordon doesn't know who batman is he trusts him he believes in him they they have each other's back even when things go you know absolutely sideways um and we've never seen that on the big screen and it just excited me so much to see that yeah either either we get like a goofy cartoony thing like during the schumacher films or you know they barely meet they barely have a relationship in the nolan films um, so yeah, seeing this, or it's like, it's this full fledged, like partnership. It's almost like they're partners. Um, yeah. So that was really, really cool to see. Um, and it, it, it yeah, it's, it's just really fascinating to, and I love the portrayal by both actors, like, and, and like you said, they just stick their neck out for each other and it's, it's this back and forth and 
it's just it's almost like uh, like like they are partners and it's just really crazy cool the dynamic that they have with each other and i'm just gonna say this man i'm so glad when when casting agents are colorblind you know like i am glad because jeffrey wright in this role is a revelation he is he's the quintessential james gordon you know and and so if we would have had like you know Zoe uh, Zoe Kravitz situation in like you know the Nolan verse where you know we're not going urban with the character like what a stupid comment you know like we we could have missed out on something like Jeffrey Wright as Jim Gordon and I think that would be an absolute that would be an absolute travesty because like that's the most James Gordon James Gordon I think that we have seen on the big screen. All right, Chris, that brings us to your uh, second like, and this one uh, I will wholeheartedly echo. Oh, man, everything about the music. Like, um, I th- I think I saw something like on Spotify that the Something in the Way song by Nirvana has had like a 2000% increase in plays. Um, and then, you know, the, the score by Michael Giacchino, like, which is just immaculate. Just that main theme, like every time I walk into a room, that song is playing and I walk slowly, make sure my footsteps are elaborate. It's it's just infectious and it does so much to set the mood for a scene. The combination of the sounds of the rain and his boot steps uh, and then that that uh, that main theme, that score and then and then the Nirvana song is just everything about the music in this movie absolutely is is one of the quintessential parts of setting the mood and setting the theme for the entire film and and without it I don't know I think it's the glue that holds it all together to be honest yeah the score in particular I mean I, I you know the inclusion of the Nirvana song was fun and all but the score in particular to me is is so moody and so gives that noir vibe, and at the same and time, and shouts to Ave Maria as well. Always, always a winner. Yeah. Oh God, yes, uh, sung at my uh, at my uncle's wedding too. So <laughs> it keeps keeps super, popping up in my super life. Super Catholic, <laughs> yeah, just a little bit. Um, but you know, the thing the thing here too, I think, is just that the score really, really, really hits the right notes. Not just because it has that noir sort of uh, vibe, but also because it has such a clear batman theme like one of the things that the the nolan movies are always criticized for is that there isn't a clear theme for batman's character you know there isn't a theme that's like oh now batman's coming you know it's there's no no superman theme like in superman 78 or something right like we, we we're lacking a clear musical theme for the character um and and that is there is one here. I mean, it is so apparent. It slaps you in the face and it's so moody and, and cool and, and different from what we've had before for like superhero uh, scores. Like this is a great, great little Batman theme like that. You know, that, that those tones start droning like, oh, there he comes is own, you know, like yeah. it's, it's perfect. It is such a good Batman theme, man. It's, it's probably the best that we've gotten since, you know, Danny Elfman's on Batman uh, 89. Yeah, for sure. All right, Dave, your third and final like is a big one. Yeah, dude. Like, who would have thought the Penguin would be this darn good? Like, like even buried under, you know, all these, all this makeup and stuff. Colin Farrell came out of nowhere with this. Like, I did not expect this performance to be this good. Now, seeing um, a more mob-inspired uh, Penguin is is not that unusual in the comic books. Um, it's It's kind of become sort of a standard thing to see him more um 
as a crime lord unless as a guy who shoots out of umbrellas and throws exploding penguins at you or something, uh, which I think works incredibly well for the character. And it's so fascinating to see how they made a um, a penguin that was the penguin without looking like a penguin. I know that sounds weird, <laughs> but like we did, like we didn't have to go the the Danny DeVito route here and have him like you know be raised in the sewer by runaway penguins um, and like eating raw fish and like looking like a bizarre like. I don't even know. Like, we didn't have to go in this direction at all. And at the same time, we have sort of exaggerated features and that very prominent facial scar. You know, he almost reminds me of, like, like a Dick Tracy villain, you know? Like, Dick Tracy villains in the comics always had these really exaggerated facial features. They were, like, almost forerunners to sort of like the supervillain rogues galleries we have these days and like I, I think the penguin is right there like he's not full on look I'm a supervillain and I shoot you know a machine gun out of my umbrella but at the same time he is sort of a, a crime mob villain and the performance here is absolutely great like this guy is complex and interesting and apparently speaks really good Spanish um, <laughs> and so I'm really I'm, I'm just I'm excited, actually, that they've decided to make a, a spinoff that focuses on the Penguin. Like, I'm interested to see more of this character and how he, you know, interacts with Gotham sort of at large and stuff. Like, I, I think there's really something in that performance and in this interpretation of the character that I'm willing to stick with and see more of, Chris. Yeah, and I love, too, that it's not, like, so carbon copy. I think with a lot of organized crime storylines in popular media it can become so black and white like oh this is the guy but it was it was very intertwined it was very like complicated the storyline and the betrayals and the back and forth and that that added to more added to so much more of the context of the character as well and can we just admit that in the Nolan movies, all the mob scenes were by far the most boring of the movie? Mm-hmm. Like every time the mob characters came on screen, I was like, no, no, no. Can we go back to Heath Ledger's Joker? Yeah. Like, like th- this is boring. But here, here all the mob stuff worked. Like the Penguin, Carmine Falcone. All these characters were, were complex and interesting and, and, and three-dimensional, fully realized. Whereas all the mob characters in in the nolan trilogy and and i'm not trying to compare the two you know i mean to some extent but you know i'm not saying that the nolan movies are necessarily horrible or something i really did enjoy that version of batman a lot too but the mob stuff was very flat Uh, all all the mob characters were very one-dimensional and because of that you never really got invested in them like i was invested in carmine falcone i was invested in oswald cobblepot i found these characters very very interesting and i and i wanted to see what happens to them you know i'll i'll add to that um john turturro's you know portrayal of of carmine falcone because like it was this like very suave creepy handsy type thing but like you bought it and like you could see how he rose to the top of this criminal element because he's so charismatic and everything yeah, and I really, really loved like how soft spoken he was yes. in most of the scenes. Like to the point where, you know, like if you didn't know who he was when he walked into the room, you almost could like overlook him. Like he's very, very subtle yeah. in, in his in how he uses his voice and his movements, but at the same time he projects like threatening and scary. It was a very, very cool performance for a character like that. And I think, you know, not to do a direct comparison all the time, but you know, with Tom Wilkinson as as Falcone, like 
why do you have a white English actor playing an Italian mobster? But that's neither here nor there. But it was very cartoonish, I feel, and very like silly. Like it's a very silly caricature of what a mobster was. And these felt like, oh God, these this this is the real deal. Yes, that's exactly right, man. All right, Chris, that brings us to your uh, final like. Okay, so like ever since Pattinson was cast uh, and we saw the first looks uh, of any kind of footage or any kind of set photos, the the running joke is emo Bruce, emo Bruce. And even now, even after the release, there's still jokes about it and it's all in good fun. But I thought that it was absolutely fascinating and absolutely relatable. You know, we always see... Bruce Wayne typically is this square jawed, handsome man that is this archetypal machismo type character. But like when you really sit and think about like the effects of both of his parents being murdered like that, this this makes so much sense of the type of recluse, social recluse and hermit that you would really be. And so I thought this was like a much more realistic and believable type of character. And I'm really interested um, to kind of see where we go with this character moving forward. I think that's probably what I'm most intrigued about is seeing the development of Bruce, because most of the time in other Batman films, um, and this is an interesting comparison too, we got a lot of Batman. We did not get a lot of Bruce. Most of the film, he was in suit Batmaning. and so I think that left us wanting for more as well. But for the first time ever, I really gave a crap about Bruce. Any other type of Batman, I didn't give a rip about Bruce himself. I wanted Batman. This one, I, I need to know more about his development. And like it, it was so, so interesting. And I thought it was so relatable and so believable. Because when you're dealing with grief like that, if you've ever had anything terrible and traumatic happen to you, that's a very relatable thing. So here's here's... You know, here here's the thing about I think where this movie departs in a lot of ways from previous Batman movies. I think in a lot of ways most Batman movies are not actually about Batman. I think most Batman movies that we've had in the past were predominantly about the villains. Like, and I think that started very clearly with Tim Burton's Batman because the bigger star in that movie was by far Jack Nicholson. Yes. And so the movie and so the movie was very much focused on Jack Nicholson and on his version of the Joker. And we got a lot less Bruce Wayne and a lot less Batman as uh, you know development out of that. I mean, if you look at that movie as much as I love it, what was Batman's arc in that movie? Not a lot. You know, like <laughs> I can't I, Yeah, I mean, I can I can't point to a very clear arc for him in that movie, you know? Uh, very similar in Batman Returns. That was very much, you know, the Penguin and Selina Kyle and and Max Shrek's movie even before it was Batman's movie. So Batman has, in a lot of ways, always sort of played second fiddle to his villains in movies. And I think this is really, in a lot of ways, the first movie that is predominantly about Batman. And so we get actually a very clear arc for him for a change. He starts with I am vengeance and by the end of the movie realizes that vengeance isn't what Gotham needs, that he needs to be more, he needs to be better. It can't just be about vengeance. And that arc and how he gets there and how he sees 
how the Riddler is in, was inspired by him and how one, one of you know Riddler's minions there at the end says, I am vengeance and the face he makes, the eyes, you know, how, how that, that pang hits him. Like, holy crap, this is me. This is what I could be because I'm so focused on vengeance. That is fascinating. It's a great, great arc. It's, it's actual Batman character development. He is in a different place at the end than he is at the beginning. And, and how many... How many Batman movies can we say that about? But not just that. I think, you know, I I think there's so much weird discourse going on around, you know, the casting of Robert Pattinson, for example, and how they're making fun of the fact that he was in the Twilight movies, kind of completely ignoring all the, you know, the small independent films that he has done since, kind of cutting his teeth and and honing his craft. He's quite the actor these days. Um And then on top of that, like stuff like, oh, you know, he has the dark makeup around his eyes when he takes the mask off. You know, he's a little goth boy or something. But dude, every Batman that we've had has the black makeup around his eyes, uh, you know, as a way of making it work with the mask. This is just a Batman that is, you know, dirty and grimy. You know, he takes off the mask. He's sweaty. You know, the, the black makeup is run across his face. You don't think that would happen with the other Batman? Of course it did. We just never saw it. You know, I, 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 I joke that you could almost smell him, you know, yes. through the screen. Yeah. Like, you know, that, you know, that man was sweaty and yeah. grimy and was my just... favorite line, my favorite line from Alfred, go take a shower. <laughs> And and it is absolutely accurate because if you're in, in that suit all night fighting people and, and running around and grappling, hooking around, of course, you're going to be dirty, sweaty, and grimy. You know, crime fighting is not going to be a clean job, especially not in Gotham City. And I think it was a wise move to, to show you know that kind of stuff. This is the kind of thing that grounds Batman, not trying to explain where every single gadget came from. I didn't need, like in the Nolan movies, for example, an elaborate backstory about, you know, how these um, contact lenses were developed that he uses. You know, that's not what makes a character grounded. You know, showing these sorts of things, the sweat, the grime, the the black eye makeup running, you know, that that shows a grounded take on the character. And so I, I absolutely adore, you know, this version of Batman and to an extent, this version of Bruce Wayne. I think it's interesting because we, I don't think we saw a, a Bruce Wayne necessarily in this movie because he was basically Batman, even when he was didn't have the mask off. He did not try to make a difference between Batman and Bruce Wayne to the point where I think the Riddler got it right when he said, you know, I know when you wear the mask, that's your true face. You know, when I put my mask on, I felt like I could be who I really am. I think that's true in this case. He has, he's not given himself a chance to be Bruce Wayne because he's been so focused again on vengeance. And I think if we get a sequel, we're going to probably see a very different kind of Bruce Wayne come out of this. I'm I'm very interested to see where this goes, Chris. Yeah, and and I just had an aha moment when you laid it out like that. My all-time favorite piece of literature, piece of anything. I've I, I usually don't revisit things. I've I've read the entirety of The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexander Dumas at least eight times in in full. I absolutely love that story, and he goes through this entire elaborate plan that is literally decades and decades of planning meticulous planning learning the weaknesses of the people who wronged him in this plan of vengeance only to find out that 
it was all the wrong way to go about it. And like he's he's his whole life and all of his wealth and all of his relationships have been consumed with this path of vengeance, this war path. And then realizing in the end that it was all for naught, like it was it was, you know, he the one thing he cared about Mercedes, like he jeopardized all of that because of vengeance and so you know there are very clear parallels here and it actually just dawned on me yeah i totally agree with that you know i think that is a very um a very powerful theme that vengeance that revenge does not give the closure that you think and that you know you have to you know move past that um and i think this movie does a really good point uh, a really good job making that point uh, through the bruce wayne batman character also made um since this is kind of analogous like the whole thomas and martha wayne thing was was very fascinating and like making them more believable characters rather than these staunchy cardboard memoriams uh that that they have been in basically every other iteration i've seen yeah so that that i think if i remember correctly feels a little bit like something like uh batman uh earth one the earth one graphic novels there was a little bit more a willingness to to admit that the waynes might have been imperfect um and then there's like the telltale batman games which also play with the idea that maybe they weren't exactly good guys so i you know again there's some very very clear and strong influences here i really think that this this alfred too is is straight up um is straight up earth one you know um let me ask you this the arkham last name for martha is her maiden name is that is that a new thing or is that long established so if i remember correctly initially it was martha kane Mm -hmm. and it's like that part of the family that um bruce is related to um kate kane batwoman through oh okay um in in mainstream comics now i want to say I ah, questioning me on my my DC knowledge. <laughs> I want I want to say that uh, that's a Batman Earth one thing as well because by the time you hit the third out of those three graphic novels, that comes begin to play. Like, um, you know that this idea that the Arkham's all have you know mental health problems and stuff. That um, I want to say that's a that's a, a Jeff Johns Batman Earth one thing. I don't recall seeing that before then. Um, but I, I, it, it does have a precedent in the comic books. All right, Dave, maybe we should like retitle this like the nitpicks or something, but technically they're dislikes. What is your first dislike? So my first dislike is very simply that I think the finale worked better on an emotional level than on an action level. Um, I think it was a fine enough action sequence when he's trying to take down all the Riddler's um followers i guess in in a social media sense and in a literal sense um but at the same time like i I think there was an emotional resonance to you know catwoman coming to save him and then him saving catwoman um and there was an emotional resonance to like flooding gotham and him realizing that he needs to be not vengeance but really hope for people i think all that worked pitch perfect i do think though that the action sequence itself wasn't perfectly laid out i think there could have been more done to make that uh, an an interesting action sequence i feel like he got shot with a shotgun an awful lot yeah and was and well and was dangling from the side of a building repeatedly and every time it treated it like it was the first time he was dangling from the side of the building and this time for sure he's gonna die and like he's already dangled from the side of this thing twice before why is it you know 
more scary this time. So I, I think the finale was was very good on an emotional level, but I don't think that the sequence itself was necessarily laid out action-wise as good as it could have been. I think there were action sequences before in the movie that felt much more um, interesting than the finale one. And I think that's just something that... Yeah, I think they should have done a little more to make the finale feel like the, the biggest moment action-wise as well as the biggest moment from an emotional level. Yeah, although I did love him taking on the incel army. Uh, it did not <laughs> it did not pack enough punch, pun fully intended, but yeah, I can see that. So uh, I'm going to be completely honest with you. Your first dislike is my second dislike, so let's just go ahead and talk about it. Let's do it. Um, I loved Alfred, but there just wasn't near enough, and I thought that, like... <clears throat> In a movie that's two hours and 55 minutes, it's hard to say you need more of something. But I feel like there was a little bit lacking as far as like the relationship there because i i ate it up right away where like he's helping him by like cracking that codex and everything and then boom he gets blown up and then they have the scene in the hospital which is incredibly emotional and then we don't really get him again so i needed more alfred and i love how somebody said this on social media we haven't had a bad alfred yet uh my favorite thing about the snyder films was jeremy irons like so if I have to pick out one thing, I actually say say something nice about the Snyder films. I love Jeremy Irons as as Alfred. But um, so I was like, how is this going to work with Andy Serkis? I mean, like, really, we're going to have Gollum. We're going to have Caesar from the Planet of the Apes films and, and Ulysses Claw. But I absolutely loved it and I needed more of it. Yeah, and this Alfred again, uh, you know, kind of wearing its influences on the sleeves, basically felt very much like an like Earth One's Alfred, right down to the fact that he had like you know the goatee thing going on and everything, uh, the look um, and the feel, and even how he talks about how he uh, helped train Bruce to fight because of his time in like special ops or something. That's that's very that's very Earth One, um, very very cool version of Alfred, and very different than. Um, you know, the, the usual, you know, butler thing that, that they have going on. So, uh, yeah, I, I totally agree. I think this is a really interesting Alfred, and we did not get enough of him. And if they're going to do anything uh, in the sequel, uh, they should definitely have more of him and involve him more strongly in the narrative because it was well acted, well written, and just a really interesting take on the character. And and I will say, you know, it gave me vibes of um, Sean Pertwee's performance on Gotham, which was basically the only thing I liked about Gotham. Uh, that yeah. show was just a whole mess. But Sean Pertwee, uh, who's a great character actor that I love everything I've seen him in. He showed up in one of my favorite shows, another Dumas reference. Here we go. Uh, but he showed up in in The Musketeers, the BBC version. Uh, he was magnificent there. So I loved that character. Um, so I was happy to see that again. And then, like I said, just need more of it. I totally agreed. Now, uh, we just we just did your first dislike and my second dislike at the same time so that that was fun what is your second dislike uh, of the movie chris like i said this is more like nitpicks for me but we saw this in the dark night of the villain giving themselves up so it was just like okay here we go again but i i, I did like how they kind of did more with it of like his real plan was unleashing his incel army um, but it was just like, I'm, I'm not a fan of this whole villain give, giving themselves up trope. But really, it's all part of the plan. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah, I, I'll totally agree with that. That's become one of the tropiest tropes that superheroes ever troped. Um, just, I don't think it adds anything to it to say it was part of the plan. I think it would have been much more interesting to say that they legitimately caught him, yeah. that the Riddler didn't plan for this, that he had planned to lead his incel army, basically. Um, I love how you call it the incel army. <laughs> That's it our new me, thing. It makes me smile. It makes me smile. <laughs> it might be the I think title this episode. For the episode. Is <laughs> Batman versus the incel army. Yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, um, I don't think it adds anything to that in this case. I think if we said it was his plan to actually lead them himself, but then when he didn't show, they decided to just go through with the plan anyways, I think that would have been um, better, would have given, I think, the, the heroes a win, basically, um, without it being like all oh, the master plan of the bad guy. Also, somebody pointed this out on social media. The Riddler only has 500 followers. <laughs> How is he? How is he this master planner? And like, how is that like five hundred followers? He's, he's, Good gracious! Well, dude, he's he's definitely not an influencer. You yeah. can say that. <laughs> All right, Dave. What is your final dislike? So my final dislike is basically, and, and uh, it seems like a weird thing to say, but I'm I'm sad that it's going to be a long time till we see more of this Batman. Um, and you you mentioned sort of at the top that it felt like sort of a um, a multi part episode on something like Batman the Animated Series or something, and I think and this is this is so disingenuous of me because I love big screen movies and I've kind of criticized that you know Disney's thrown everything MCU lately on Disney Plus a series, but man, this is a small screen take on Batman. I sincerely believe that. I think this is this is something that doesn't necessarily benefit from being huge on the big screen. It's not a bombastic movie uh, in a, in a lot of ways, and I don't think based on you know based on the staging and setting and, and the special effects of everything, I don't think this was a huge CGI production. You know, like I think you can have this kind of Batman easily in a in in like a series on HBO Max on a small screen, and it'll work perfectly. And my biggest regret about this movie is that it's going to be now again at least two to three years till we see this Batman again. And it would be so fun to have like a mini series, six to eight episodes every year, where we get another like, you know, long Halloween, dark victory style, you know, story of him investigating something. Um, you, you and I both know the way the way Hollywood functions. That at the most we're going to get this version of Batman directed by Matt Reeves at most two more times you know like trilogy seems to be three and done seems to be the most that anybody's willing to do these days and and that's fair they want to move on and do other things but this version of batman seems so definite to me as far as like how it connects to the comic book and stuff i just wished instead of getting something like you know gotham we would get something like this on the small screen you can do i think this kind of batman very easily with the right kind of writers on board on the small screen and we could have had a lot more of this kind of Batman. I'm just sad that it's going to be probably at least three years till we see it again. Yeah. And even we referenced it before, but it looks like we're going to get delays for the penguin series and the GCPD series that was announced uh, a while back is on hold. So um, yeah, it's, it's a little, a little bit saddening. It is because it's, it's just such a good version of, of Batman. I think. All right, that brings us to your final dislike, Chris. What you got? And like I said, this is more of a nitpick, but like the whole DA scene with the bomb attached to his neck, he's like sitting there refusing to give up the name. And if I remember correctly, he has to give him the password 
but he's still like standing like face to face, forehead to forehead with him. So even if he were to give up the name, they still would have had to type in the password. And then he takes a bomb to the face. And like his very, it, just the way that that played out towards the end, I was like, dude, he's obviously not going to give this name up. Back away. <laughs> Yeah, I think it would have been a little more believable if he would have like, you know, jumped behind a pew or something, yeah. <laughs> you know, right before it goes off. It was a very cool visual on the one hand, but he also got like, as you said, bombed to the face, which is literally the one part of his body that's not completely covered up. Yeah. So it's a little more unbelievable that his armor would have completely protected him there. But but you're right, it is kind of a nitpicky moment and, and not unusual for, for sort of these comic booky movies, I guess. But you know, we can't we can't forgive all transgressions. You know, <laughs> maybe maybe uh, the Riddler's bomb making skills are not as as quality as you thought because you know Alfred had the presence of mind to throw it on the other side of the room and he's he came out okay. So maybe maybe the bombs aren't that strong. Yeah, they're like they're little tiny bombs. Yeah, they're, they're attention getting <laughs> bombs. He just wants a radical change. He doesn't want to blow up everything. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> All right, that wraps up our review of the Batman, Dave. All right, time to grade the grade the assignment. What do you give it? Yeah, I'm going to give it some high praise, dude. I'm thinking we got an A minus here. I think this is just easily um, the best Batman movie that's that we've had. You know, I I have other Batman movies that are very close to my heart. Batman '89 obviously is very close to my heart. It's you know the first the first Batman movie I've ever watched, and I love it in a lot of ways. And I absolutely adore The Dark Knight for Heath Ledger's bonkers take on the Joker. But if you're looking at, like, whole package, I think this is the movie that gets the most right. And I and I love, love, love this movie, and I can't wait to see it again. So A-minus for me, Chris. How about you? Uh, I'm going to be a little bit more generous. Um, but that that stays in line with our grading practices, I think. I'm, I'm a big big bleeding heart but i'm gonna go probably a and i can't wait to watch it again i think we're gonna get it released next month on hbo max so i'm just gonna have it on loop throughout the house that sounds like a plan man like just like every screen you have just constantly yep. playing bat the batman 24 hours every a day. time i walk into a room something is in the way <laughs> all right that that is all for our byword big talk this week make sure you hit us up on social media with your thoughts your likes your dislikes uh at nerd by word on twitter and instagram or that nerd dave that nerd chris individually but when we come back from this we're going to come at you with two more nerd commendations <laughs> All right, we're back for everybody's favorite segment. You know it as... All right, Dave, we already referenced a year one, but you got a different character in mind. Yeah, so I think it's, it's uh, you know, one of those things that just happens when you suddenly have access to DC Universe Infinite. You find yourself reading a whole bunch of stuff that you've never had a chance to read before. And one of the things I decided to sink my teeth into was a, a 2008 uh, miniseries, six-issue miniseries, called Huntress Year One. Now, for the uninitiated, the Huntress is a uh, Batman side character, uh, one of the extended Bat family, as we like to say. Uh, she is actually a f- sort of a uh, mob princess, Helena Bertinelli, whose uh, family gets gunned down by a rival family. And she transforms herself into the Huntress as a way of getting revenge. She's in a lot of ways sort of a darker 
uh, reflection of Batman. She uh, uses uh, crossbows. She is not above lethal force, which gets her into, you know, a lot of trouble with Batman frequently as they, you know, argue about methods. She's been often sort of the character that is on the outside of the Bat family, an ally, but not really a part of it, like a Robin or a Batgirl, for example. And that makes her, um, as strange as that is to say, a harder-edged character than many of those in the Bat family. And so seeing a year one take on her was really um, interesting to me. Uh, so bad, uh, So um, this Bat side character, Huntress, is fascinating already out, out of the gate. But then seeing a really good team take her on and sort of flesh out her background was a lot of fun. So it was written by Ivory Sophia Madison, had Cliff Richards and Matt Clark on pencils, uh, colors by Jason Wright. Uh, no, uh, col yeah, colors by Cliff Richards and the cover color by Jason Wright. Um, very, very beautiful. Uh, series from a visual perspective and from a writing perspective you know it has once again a little bit of that film noir quality as she sort of is narrating um, her life as she gets you know moved around to different family to be raised and uh, one of the family members is sort of a mob assassin who decides to train her so she can protect herself and the complexities of the closest thing you have to a big brother or father figure being this assassin um and then, you know, just a twist and turns through all that. Uh, another really cool thing is despite the fact that she is not above using lethal force, the Huntress is extremely Catholic. <laughs> so she's she, wear, she wears a cross as part of her outfit and sort of her relationship with her faith um, is, is sort of a, a very interesting element of the character. Um, I was very, very pleased with Huntress Year One. I thought it was a great, great retelling of her origin story. Um, and I was very, very pleased also to see that they weren't using uh, the absolutely atrocious Jim Lee redesign of her basically having her belly hanging out and everything because apparently less clothes is better for some reason in comic books. Um, the, the take of her suit here is very much in line with probably the best Huntress suit we've seen. Um, and I was glad to see that make a comeback. Just overall, the six-issue mini was a great primer on who Huntress is, what her relationship is with Batman, how she figures into sort of the, the mob landscape of Gotham City. Um, just, just a really, really fun, fun take on the character. Um, well, fun in the way is it's a fun read, but not really fun to be Helena Bertinelli considering all the horrible things that happened to her. But yeah, this one comes highly recommended, man. It's a very good read. Yeah, I was absolutely captivated by the character when I saw um, Birds of Prey. Uh, film which is like the little comic book movie that could like there's so much gold in that film like and it doesn't get nearly enough fanfare for me of course we love journey smollett's black canary and everything but i thought mary elizabeth winstead was super fun as this like woman of few words uh thought that was a hilarious take so i'm definitely interested to look out more for this character yeah, I, Huntress is one of those characters that I think gets sort of underappreciated. Fun fact, uh, when Huntress was first introduced, uh, right in line with our The Batman review, she was actually introduced as an Earth 2 character where all the superheroes got a chance to sort of age and grow up. And uh, she was the daughter of Bruce Wayne and Selina Kyle. And then after uh, DC got sort of rid of its multiverse for a little while, they reinvented, reinvented the character as this mob princess. And I think that's probably the the more popular version of the character at this point. So, But she started out as Batman's daughter, essentially. 
All right, Chris, what is your nerd commendation this week? Oh, man. I, I, it, should, it should be uh, Xbox Game Pass Ultimate. But as... <laughs> as oh, but Every I, week, probably, right? <laughs> right? But anyways, one of the games that was just released on there this week is one of the most critically acclaimed, well-reviewed games of the year. And that is um, Marvel's Guardian of the Galaxy. And so with kind of the ups and downs of the Avengers game, it is a previous nerd commendation, but I can see the valid criticisms of it. And I can see why it flopped with a lot of people. I enjoyed it. It's not the best game, but I enjoyed it. So I was a little bit gun shy um, when it came to Guardians of the Galaxy. But after, after heard all these reviews and it's no additional cost for me to download it, man, it's so good. Um, if you love like Telltale games and stuff like that, which they did previously have a Guardians of the Galaxy Telltale game, it's very along the line story-wise of that. Um, one of the criticisms is that you only play as Star-Lord and that you kind of have these co-op skills that you build with the other Guardians. It's the same cast from the film franchise um, with basically more or less some of the same characterizations. I think this might be a hot take. I, I actually think I am. Uh, I, I think I like these better here. I think I prefer them um, to some of the characterizations of the characters. Uh, they have a little bit more personality and flair. Um, but I, I really love this uh, game. It's it's really fun, kind of building relationships with the other guardians. It's complicated, and as with any kind of telltale like choices type of game, they have consequences. And I absolutely love having stakes in something, and a decision that you make um, in a video game has you know consequences and repercussions. Um, so, particularly, I think Star Lord is an interesting character that kind of has lost his way in the MCU for me um but in reading al ewing's um guardians of the galaxy in particular uh issue nine of that run is probably the greatest comic single issue that i read in the last year i highly recommend it i did nerd commend it as part of my entire al ewing run but guardians of the galaxy in particular here's a hot take i liked it better than immortal hulk so his guardians run is just fun it's effervescent it's bright it's colorful it's so much fun and it's it's in a lot of ways this game reflects that it's it's what i want from star wars like even there's even little notes there's a little chewbacca action figure that figures heavily in the storyline um but it's just like that fun loving han solo type like we're on the run from the nova Corps. we're trying to dodge all these different people trying to collect bounties on us it's it's so much fun and now it's got me like dying to read more guardians of the galaxy comics um the storytelling on this is immaculate there are some really deep emotional moments between star lord and his mother like that will have you in tears um really complicated back and forth with some of the guardians they make decisions they don't agree with they get pissed off at each other really fascinating stuff and it's just so freaking funny like the writing on this is top notch it will have you howling with laughter and my favorite feature of the game is when you get enough like team up points you click the left but uh left bumper and the right bumper at the same time and you do this huddle up and then like you have to like figure out the right motivational speech to give to the team and if you do it correctly 
the soundtrack starts playing and it's all the great hits from the 80s. So Dave, I was mashing all on a bunch of aliens. I was slaughtering aliens to uh, Rick Astley's Never Gonna Give You Up or Wham's Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go. And like, it's, it's just, it doesn't get much better than that. So if you're an 80s kid, especially, I was born late 80s. So some of the references are a little bit older than me, but I, it, I have enough through my parents' influence to appreciate it. Um, so 80s nostalgia, fun loving quips, like this game has it all. I'm going to say I was a huge fan of um, Telltale as a company i yes. love their sort of story driven games yes but the guardians of the galaxy game they put out was the one game i really struggled to get into and i ultimately gave up on it and i think that's because it tried maybe a little too much to huge sort of the um the mcu version of the characters yeah. without actually having the license to use the likenesses yes and so it the whole thing ended up feeling like sort of you know you know great value guardians of the galaxy like some kind of off-brand rather than its own valid interpretation and so i'm I'm thrilled to hear that this is not the case here i know this game has been on my radar you know for a while because it's gotten such good word of mouth already it's it saddens me that square enix has kind of gone on the record as saying that they found found the game to be disappointing even though critics almost universally loved it i don't know what's going on at square enix that they can't get their crap straight um i'm just really excited to play this thing i'm I've, I've been waiting for it to come to Game Pass. Now that it's there, I'm going to try to make time for it. Uh, I love I love a good game like in, in sort of this genre. So I'm here for it, man. Yeah. Also, a really cool note is like there's lots of different outfits for each character. And then when you go to that screen, it gives you a brief rundown of each outfit. And here's the cool part for lovers of comic books. It shows you the first appearance of that outfit, who designed it, who was the writer on that comic who is the artist the penciler the inker everybody the whole creative team gets love and uh, as as a comic book fan that made my heart sing yeah i totally am with you there man all right that wraps up another episode of the nerd byword podcast thank you so much for riding along with us um what are your thoughts on the batman be sure to hit us up on social media at nerd by word on twitter and instagram or that nerd dave and that nerd chris on social media And if you liked what you heard, don't forget to give us a rating, a review, and subscribe to our podcast, The Nerd by Word, on any podcasting platform. We're available truly everywhere. Uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn Radio. If you're there, we're there. You can even find us on our very own website, nerdbyword.com. And as always, stay well and stay nerdy. The Nerd Byword is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez with additional drops composed by Joe Biondi. Our show art is by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. Mm-hmm.